Hey everyone, you may have already heard about the One You Feed mass meetup that's going to happen on Saturday, June 29th. But if you have not registered yet, this would be a great time to do it. It's going to be completely free. It's going to happen on Saturday, June 29th all around the world. In order to be part of it, you don't have to make a commitment at this point, but if you register, we know where you are. And if enough people in any given place register, then we have enough people and we will schedule a meetup for you all. So the more people who register, the greater probability of a meetup taking place in your area. So you can go to oneufeed.net slash meetup to sign up for this gathering. You'll need to do it by June 22nd, end of day, June 22nd. And again, go to oneufeed.net slash meetup to register your interest. I sincerely hope we have lots of people participating in this, giving you a chance to meet each other. So oneufeed.net slash meetup. Thanks. Human beings, we don't seem to do well if we're living life exclusively for ourselves. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. First Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Adi Ashanti. This is actually his third time on the podcast, so he's a member of an elite club there. Uh, he's an American-born spiritual teacher devoted to serving the awakening of all beings, and his teachings are an open invitation to stop, inquire, and recognize what is true and liberating at the core of all existence. Adi Ashanti also runs the Omega Retreat, which Eric has taken part in frequently. Hi, Adya. Welcome to the show. 
Thanks, Eric. This is our third time to sit down, so I don't know. I think there's been one other guest who's been on three times, so you are in elite company. Is that right? Yes, <laughs> yes. So it's always fun to do, and we are in person, which always makes it even more fun for me. So many of them we, I do remote, so I love when I could do them in person. So mm-hmm. thank you. Some of what we're going to talk about is your most recent book, The Most Important Thing, mm-hmm. Discovering Truth at the Heart of Life. But before that, you're going to get a chance to respond for the third time to the wolf parable. <laughs> uh, there's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. And he says, in life, there's two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and thinks about it for a second and looks up at his grandfather. And he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to kind of ask you, like I said, for the third time, and I don't know what you said the first two times, so have at it. I don't know either, <laughs> which is probably a good thing. Uh, it's an interesting question, you know, because it's, it's like one of those parables that on, on the face of it seems pretty simple and straightforward. And I think anybody that's halfway conscious um, knows exactly what you're referring to in that yeah. parable, right? Um, and yet... It also has, seems to have this portal into something that's really quite, quite deep and universal for us all. Um, and the thing that comes to mind when you were telling me that parable again is that, you know, is that actually like it's the same wolf, mm-hmm. right? The good wolf and the bad wolf is the same wolf, right? It's, it's all part of our, part of our psyche. And I do think that, um, Mostly, I think we feed with our so, sort of attention and intention. I think our undervalued things in in human life, you know, just the, our mere attention, like where are we giving our attention to, but also our our intention. And I've focused a lot, a lot more on that in the last few years. Of um, uh, the way I like to try to approach it is. When we all look at our, our, whatever our deeper, more meaningful experiences in life have been, you know, um, they could be revelatory moments or whatever. It could be the birth of a child or falling in love or a spiritual awakening or all sorts of different experiences. But I think that, and this kind of gets back into that, that, this sort of wolf parable or analogy is when we touch upon our depth, I think we can... We can sort of, we have a certain experience, sometimes certain insights come, come from that. But what the thing that we don't often do, which gets back to intention, is look and, and reassess and go from that perspective, from the perspective of whatever has been my more, some of my more meaningful or insightful experiences in my life, what becomes truly important? You know, and then important in the sense from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And I think that's a way of connecting with our truer nature, right? With uh, the more benevolent way of being um, inside of us. And, but to see it not just as an experience or something that feels good or feels meaningful, but really it's, it's sort of more, there's a more challenging way, I think, to look at it, which, which when we look from our depth, goes, how does that experience prioritize our life? In other words, what becomes meaningful? What becomes worthwhile orienting my life around? 
That's kind of how I look at it now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a way of orienting it around that benevolent and wise sort of light within ourselves. But like I said, I think it's also the same wolf, even though it has these two aspects, right? It's the same self, the same psyche that experiences both our light and our darkness. Um, and yet I think, especially as I get older, you know, I'm 56 now, and I think one of the things as you get older, as you age more, certainly in my case, you just become more and more willing to experience the entirety of of your being. And I think part of it is you get encountered with things that we try not to encounter early, like limitation, like mm-hmm. human flaw, human fallibility, you know, all those parts. And even from an aging level, you know, we're not in the upward curve of our strength and endurance and even our cognitive capacity, but we're in a different dimension of of our life. And even though I don't associate that with like darkness or anything like that, um, I think there is an encounter with limitation that we don't usually see as sort of the light, bright, shiny, you know, wisdom part of us that, but there is a profound kind of wisdom that comes with a, a kind of confrontation with limitation or even with sometimes some of the dark spaces inside. Yeah, we did an interview with a guy named Jonathan Rauch. He works for the Brookings Institute. His book is called the, I think it's called The Happiness Curve, if I recall. Mm-hmm. And he basically says that if you look at, again, this is demographically, every your individual experience might be different, that you see happiness start off as you're younger up here, mm-hmm. and then it sort of plummets down and sort of bottoms out in what we might consider middle age, mm-hmm. late 40s. And then it starts to actually go back up. You know, you actually start to get better. And I think it flips that narrative on its head of, oh, your later lives are going to be unhappy. You do, to your point, you do have this recognition of limitation and you realize all the things that you might not accomplish in life that you thought you were going to do. And yet, looked at in in a certain way, we can become happier, more contented, deeper people as we age if we allow that. Yeah, I think, and I think that the definitions of sort of what we even think of as happiness is changes. Yeah. So, like for instance, now kind of going back to what you're speaking about is to me the when we're young, happiness is well, it's the sort of the conventional idea of happiness. You know, it's associated with of innocence and potentiality and like that upward curve of life and all of that. I think there's, as we mature, whether it's physically or spiritually, that happiness becomes more a outcome of wholeness, that we're actually becoming whole beings. And again, to kind of tie into that, the parable of the two wolves, I think that there's a different kind of happiness when we start to open to, the, to this sort of greater sense of whole, wholeness of being. Um, and I think that that's, in one sense, that's why that arc of well-being, maybe that's even the better word, well-being or something yeah, like that, yeah. than conventional happiness comes online because I think we start to have a bigger capacity for our own wholeness. Yep. I remember my mom when she was trying to think of the age she started to talk to me about this, but certainly in her 60s, and 
You know, she says, well, basically, you know, my life didn't unfold as I thought it would. Mm -hmm. None of my kids ended up to be who I thought they would be. (laughs) (laughs) All the things that I thought I had figured out about life, I realized I didn't have, like, figured out about life. And maybe that's part of that dip of middle life when you start Mm -hmm. to come into a recognition of, of, you know, life as it is rather than the image of life. But then there's the flip side of that where she said it's actually... It's, it's better, like, my kids ended up to be better than I hoped. Like, my, there's, my life didn't end up to be the way that I saw it being, but it seems to be getting better and better and better. And um, I think there's that confrontation with just the reality of life that that's flips the equation. I've seen as a spiritual teacher that generally a lot of times the people that are the most unhappy are the people that are seeking happiness the most. Mm. Well, in one sense, that's obvious. Like, if you're unhappy, of course you want to be happy, right? right? But I think there's also a less conventional way of looking at that that's maybe just as true, which is, especially in our culture, where we tend to be focused so much on happiness. Everybody's trying to be bright and shiny and happy and successful and all these things. And, And I think that's sort of a misunderstanding about what real happiness is. Um, And I think happiness isn't even a great goal to shoot for. Like, we all want to be happy, sort of innate in our DNA. But I think uh, the most contented people seem to be the people that have tapped into their life being an experience of something that's really meaningful to them. You know, I think if we shoot for meaning rather than just happiness, we end up being a whole lot more happy yep. in the end. And I don't necessarily mean like a meaning that you could philosophically write down in your notebook and show your friend. But I mean, you know, we all know the experience. You're a parent, right? Mm-hmm. So I imagine the, the experience of seeing your child for the first time. Probably a happy, joyous, mind-blowing moment, but I imagine that moment had a kind of depth of meaning that is probably hard for you to even try to articulate to me. Right. Right? Is that... Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of what I mean. I think there's happiness and well-being flow out of meaning, but a kind of meaning that's not always easy to articulate. Because I think meaning is fundamentally an experience of being. It's not something you can actually necessarily explain to somebody. Right. That leads me into your book is called The Most Important Thing, Discovering Truth at the Heart of Life, your latest book. And Mm -hmm. you say the questions we ask are so incredibly important. And one of the questions that you ask is, what am I in service to? Mm -hmm. You say it's an awakener. It's an awareness practice and an honesty practice. Yeah. I think it kind of comes back to the idea of meaning and and well-being. And I think meaning comes out of what we're in service to. Happiness, deeper happiness, comes out of what we're in service to. Human beings, we don't seem to do well if we're living life exclusively for ourselves. Right. Doesn't just doesn't seem to make us happy. And yet we seem to be inclined to try. Absolutely. <laughs> and at a certain point in our life, maybe that's just developmentally reasonable. Like, you know, when we're quite mm-hmm. young. But as we get as we get a little older, a little older would be 
by our late teens or early 20s. I'm not talking like, you know, <laughs> old age, but we start to, we start to have this, this turning and, and start to realize just the pursuit of, just the pursuit of happiness for ourselves doesn't end up making us happy. Yeah. Self-centeredness just isn't a, a very happy way to go through life. I remember years ago when I did um, a weekend intensive. It was really a learning um, experience for me. And I did, as a subject matter, I called the whole weekend um, Servants of Truth. And the idea was, what does it mean to actually serve what you yourself realize? Rather than trying to get more realization and how do I hold on to it and how do I have more experience and this sort of acquisition orientation towards spirituality and spiritual experience. And instead, look at whatever our more meaningful experiences of being and start to act, ask ourselves, like, how could I be in, in a deeper service to this? And it really showed me something because I got about half the people on that intensive that I normally get. <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting, you know, as a teacher, like, you know, you learn a lot from your students. Um, and it really showed me, but it, that that weekend, which is going back probably twelve to fifteen years ago now, that the, what I took out of it is, Aja, you're not getting something across. Is it, if this is how the people are responding to this idea, this is an idea you've got to articulate better than you have, mm-hmm. because if being the serve, if the word servant to something just scares people off or makes them uninteresting, like. That told me, as a teacher, I've got to be. I've got to start to articulate this in a, in a better way, um, so people really start to realize number one what I'm talking about, and um, I think the, what the foundation of, both human and spiritual maturity really is. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today 
and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. You tell a story of your first teacher and this idea of service about how she started teaching and would show up each week, write a Dharma talk, show up to meditate, and oftentimes there was nobody there. Nobody yet, came for an for, for entire year. Yeah, tell, tell me more about Not that. Not a single That's, person. And yet she would, and this, you know, she did this in her house, so she reorganized the whole living room, put out all the meditation cushions. It was no small thing. And, and then after a year, one person showed up, and they sat together for a year until a few more, and then a few more started to show up. But it was a real, I remember when she, her teaching, telling me about that story, and kind of as a dovetail to that, if I sort of fast forward many years after she asked me to teach, and not long after she asked me to teach, they found out she had a sort of, she, well, number one, she just hadn't planned on it, but intuitively she just knew it was time to stop teaching. And so she just stopped. She didn't even know why. Well, then six months of that, so this is about a year now after she'd asked me to teach, um, they found she had a brain tumor, um, which fortunately was, was not cancer, and, but they had to operate and, you know, that all the complications of brain surgery unfolded. But, and then when she started to recover from that, she used to come into the office. It wasn't this office that we have now, but not too far from here when we were much smaller. And she said, I want to come help you guys out. And I said, okay, like, come on in. We'll see what we have to do. And one day I walked in the door, and there she was sitting at a desk. And it was back when there were, like, tapes <laughs> before mm -hmm. CDs and stuff. And she was putting, you know, the, the decal on the tape where you could write the, the name of it and stuff like that. And I remember walking in the door, and I saw her doing that. And, and for me, in one way, that was one of the, um, the most profound teaching moments that I had from her, of just seeing that she'd always talked about serving the Dharma. And I was there. There she had been for over 30 years, like the teacher, and that was her way of serving the Dharma. And then when she could no longer do that, now it's putting labels on tapes in the office and seeing that as serving the Dharma. For her previous student. For her previous student. And the, the, the humility and the, and the sense of service in that just touched me so much. You know, yeah. I just thought, wow. Like, that service beyond who you are or, or how you can be seen or your position or whatever. That's just serving what's valuable to you in life. Yep. And that taught me a lot. Yeah, and that story, you, you go on after it to sort of say something, and I've noticed this a lot also in working with people, is that 
we tend to have this idea that if we're going to be of service or we're going to do something good for the world, it's become so inflated with being seen, with being noticed, or even if it's not that, even if the motivation still is, you know, if we manage to sort of keep ego out of it, it still seems like if it's not on big scale, we feel like it's not important. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's a place that a lot of people get lost yeah. and feel that life isn't, it's not as important as it could be because I'm doing this little thing, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think we sell ourselves short of the, the good work that we do do in life by not appreciating it because thinking it has to be grand for it to matter. Yeah. I think that's a really good point, Eric. I really do because, well, because the former of what you just mentioned can kind of be a sort of a, a, a sort of concealed ego Mm-hmm. orientation, right? Unless it has huge impact or I'm seen or I'm noticed or something I don't have much motivation for it. Um, where really I think the service to whatever we hold as valuable is like every, each moment of life. It's a life orientation that really doesn't have anything to do with how big the scale is or how how much it is known or that's what I got from I'd s- from seeing my teacher, you know, with those tapes, it was like that service. She's serving what's valuable to her. She's giving her life, her energy, her commitment is is actually to serving the Dharma. And it doesn't make any difference how that's seen, if it's on a big scale and a small scale, whether it's noticed or not noticed. It's just getting down like Let's say I could go out and have interviews like this or give big talks or do retreats or whatever. And then I'm like sitting in a line in a bank and somebody behind me is having a tough time, but I don't want to be bothered. You know, like all of a sudden, you know, for me, if I didn't step up to that moment and acknowledge that person or just see what their need was at that moment, the whole rest of my life would just seem like a total charade. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's kind of easy to be noble when you're up, when you're noticed. Yeah. When people notice. But I think most of our lives is not, that's not where it takes place. Right. Right? So even when I'm like, like I'll be going to a retreat, right? And I'll be teaching. But I'm actually teaching for maybe four hours during those days which means there's 20 other hours. I think the 20 other hours are just as important and maybe even more important than the four. Yep. Those are all the little small moments, you know, where it, it makes a difference. Because um, yeah. really, I mean, how much have you and I and all of us in our, in our lives had those moments where somebody just gave us what I call our two most prized commodities, a little time and attention when we needed it. And it wasn't known and it wasn't on a stage and it wasn't, it wasn't for any other reason than somebody saw that we needed a little time and attention and, when, and somebody gave it to us. I think most of us have all had those moments. And those can be very transformative moments. They're yeah. small, at least from the exterior, but... Um, so I think that's a really, really important part because we can get hung up. Like, I don't want to do this unless I can change the world. Right. Well, geez, how big an ego is that? 
<laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? talking about kids earlier like I often think about like parents I mean there's so much service embedded in that and yet often as parents we don't even reflect on that that is a noble and a beautiful thing to do like I often think as a parent you're like all I'm doing is taking care of my kids all day long and look this guy's over there giving uh, you know starting this clean water project and we we sell ourselves short about what we could feel positive about. If we looked and went, wait, my life is about service. I am serving. And can I reorient my expectation of myself? Yeah, through teaching, I have come to see how unimaginably, really unimaginably, and I don't say that as an overstatement, maybe it's an understatement, how unimaginably important parenting is. Because I see the the, 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 the fallout oh. of bad parenting. Yeah. Or just parents that just, you know, there's no, there's general, most people don't go to a parenting class. Like they're doing the best they can, but yeah. it may not actually be that great. Um, and I, I think personally, even though I don't have kids, but I think the role of, of parenting is probably the most noble calling that anybody could have. Right, because that man, you want to have impact. Um, (laughs) Parenting is your place where you you may have more impact than anything else you do. Yep, because it's going to affect that person's life, and their children, their children's children, and it's going to go on for generations. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. Really. I think it's it's. I just think it's huge, and most of it's done behind the scenes where there's no fanfare and. You know, yep. sometimes it's beautiful and lovely, and sometimes it's extraordinarily challenging, it seems to me. Yeah. Um, as my mother said to me many <laughs> years ago, you know, that the first five years I almost killed her because <laughs> I was such a difficult kid. Yeah. You know, not an ill-tempered kid, but just, I just, she just couldn't turn her back on me. Yeah. She'd never know the next dangerous thing I would be getting into. Um, and... Anyway, so I just think things like that parenting, it's not just parenting, but I think that's a really good example of, of profound service. Right. And, and it's easy to imagine, I can only imagine as a parent, at any moment during the day when there's, you know, all sorts of challenges at any given day, that it's not easy to, to keep a living sense of, of how desperately important that is and how much you are in service to the whole world. Yeah. I think it's so easy to lose sight of. Yeah. And I think it's very easy. What I'll hear, you know, people I work with in in my one-on-one work will be, you know, I'm not doing anything important in the world. I'm like, hang on, (laughs) slow your roll, hold on. Actually, you're doing something tremendously important. Right. You know, but and, and and to feel that if we're not doing something that's big, we're not doing something important is a we make ourselves feel bad about ourselves. 
I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. In a way that is truly unnecessary. I think so, too. And I think it was the consequence of something that was necessary um, culturally and developmentally. I think it was necessary that, you know, because you can get sort of lost in parenting and sort of lose your inner life in a certain sense, Mm -hmm. you know, through just trying to do the right things and be the right person and do all this kind of stuff. And, of course, generations, thousands of years of women that couldn't felt like they couldn't fulfill their potential in other ways in yeah. life beyond parenting. And so all those, you know, for all those reasons and many more, you know, this this pressure came societally to start to change that, you know, to, 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 to let people realize they can develop lives beyond and outside of their parenting roles. And so, okay, that really needed to happen, right? Especially for women, that really right. needed to happen and that transformation needed to come. And I think what often happens is we can kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater in a certain sense mm-hmm. in that, yeah, we, we want to be able to exercise our talents beyond the particular, let's say, parenting roles or family right. roles we play in life, and we want to be able to do that. But I think what we've lost in there is exactly what you were just mentioning, that yeah, we all we do want to be able to flourish in in other ways, but man, don't forget that 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 parenting role, the immensity of the importance of that is, and what a incredible service that is, and yeah. and it's and and a sacrifice, even though it seems to me that parents get so so much from being a parent, but it's 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 no walk in the park every day, right? Um, right. But so I think. We've kind of lost a yeah. little bit of touch with, with valuing how important that actually is. Yeah, that's a good point, though, about how where we, how we got where we are. I think it's really true. Yeah. I mean, it almost always goes that way. We kind of, to find balance, we go from one out-of-balance state to a little bit out-of-balance yeah. state before we find something that's, that's a little more wise. So I want to talk now about this idea that you talk about in the book, And you say there's no direct causal relationship between our spiritual pursuits and the arising of self-recognition or of spiritual awakening. So sort of saying you can't make yourself awaken. Yeah. And yet, so there's no direct causal relationship, but you also say it's a mistake to assume that what we do doesn't have an impact. So talk to me about that that dichotomy or that paradox. Yeah, well, it kind of goes into this sort of human way that we tend to think, um, which is in either or categories, Mm -hmm. right? 
And this is like a really great example of thinking in either or either either my spiritual say practice, what do I what I do to try to awaken or connect with the divine or something. Um, it, either that has a direct causal relationship to revelation or it doesn't. But if we kind of like back up from that and say, life doesn't usually go in co- according to these these <laughs> black and white ways of unfolding. Um, that. Yeah, we can't we can't you know have this recipe where I do this this and this and this and I can guarantee that it equals spiritual awakening. Right. right? It just doesn't seem to work that way. Hell if it did, we would have figured out a long time ago what the three steps or the 10 steps or the two steps that yep. you know and and yet it just doesn't sort of but so then people will conclude well then it has no no there is no causal relationship. I think the causal relationship is there. It's just not direct. It's indirect. It's in the sense of, well, to go back to parenting, right? You can't cause your kids to be exactly what you think you want them to be or should be or or guide them or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can do the same thing that another parent does and have a very, very different result. But there are tens, hundreds of thousands of indirect causal relationships that are having a are setting a stage there there are are having an effect it's just not it's just not like mathematics it's not like two and two equals four sometimes yep. two and two equals six or five or seven or right but it's also not chaotic it's not simply chance you know it's, it's, there's no mistake that most people that have say spiritual awakening not all but I would say in my experience, in excess of 95%, we're doing something specific in their pursuit of that. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll explore this more in part two about how our spiritual practice, if we're not careful, becomes about a result. Right. We do it because we expect or we want this thing to happen. Yeah. and, And that very mentality often stands directly in the way so there, the thing we there's want. the paradox of spiritual practice itself, right? right? That it can it can open doors, and it can also close doors, mm-hmm. and often it does the both of those things at the same time. <laughs> sometimes, right? yeah. Um, again, I think a lot of this goes back to the ways that we compartmentalize all this stuff. The way I see it now is um, the very impetus that gets someone to do any kind of spiritual practice, that gets them to open a spiritual book or go to a talk or look on the internet or, you know, like, why are you doing that and your friends could care less? <laughs> like, where did that come from in your, in your life? And what I would say is that the impulse, let's say, for enlightenment, big word, but we'll just, and the impulse for enlightenment is you have the impulse because the impulse is the first arising of the enlightenment arising in your consciousness. That the interest itself is a sign that there's a spiritual maturity that's already arising into consciousness. That's a very different way of looking at all this because usually we look at it as I want to awaken, right, or I want enlightenment or something because because it's not here, because I don't experience it. What I'm saying is, that your very desire for it is actually only there because that impulse is already starting to flower in your life. 
maybe not to the extent that you would like, right? Doesn't mean you just get to sit back and wait for it all to happen. But um, the yearning itself is sort of coming from the thing we're yearning for. That can be a, a more useful way to look at it because it keeps us out of this either-or way of relating to to our spirituality, our approach, our practice, whatever that might be, you know? Yep. In Zen, I remember hearing about some of this stuff just years before I had any understanding of it. Like, your practice is an expression of enlightenment itself. And I'd be sitting there meditating going, well, that sounds kind of profound, although confusing, but it certainly doesn't seem to be what I'm experiencing. Right. Like my practice doesn't feel like enlightenment at all, right, at that time. It feels like the circus is here. It's Yeah, yeah. I can see like a chaotic circus, right? A bad right. circus is coming to town. But in retrospect, which is often where we are all the most wise, right? In retrospect, yeah. you look back and I now I can clearly see that the even the that sort of chaotic impulse for awakening was there because the because in in essence awakening was already in process mm-hmm. it hadn't bloomed to the sense that i was conscious of it you know i was at that time still kind of confused and mm-hmm. and blindly groping in the dark but even the impulse to do that is coming from the thing that we're seeking we think it's coming from the lack of what we're seeking rather than the presence of what we're seeking is already starting to arise into our consciousness. And, you know, if we're, if we're ready for it, that can kind of put a little bit different twist, you know, that we can, mm-hmm. we can start to maybe just a little bit start to appreciate within the impulse to awaken itself is, is a bit of the awakened mind. We only feel that because awakened mind is already starting to sort of break through just a bit into consciousness. And if we, even if we take that as a, on a conceptual level for a little bit, that perhaps it allows one to kind of relax, relax into their practice rather than, because spiritual practice so easily becomes a sort of institutionalized seeking. Right. You know, my practice is, is nothing but spiritual seeking and that's when it becomes a barrier you know yep. um, that's when the, 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 it starts to get in the way because it's an unconscious denial of of true nature we don't know it at the time but that's kind of what it is right and that is what we will explore in part two all right so thank you so much for coming on for part one thank you it's nice to be with you If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.